Psalm 142. I know you may say, wait, you're breaking rank here. The reason that we're moving into Psalm 142 is it would be where we're at at the beach this week, but Thursday is going to be a bye. That's a baseball term, right? We're passing over it. We're taking it on now. And we had a wonderful teaching in Psalm 141 uh, last Thursday. Last Thursday. And um, it was just a wonderful, beautiful day. We've had about equal time. It's been about three beautiful Thursdays and, and three interesting Thursdays. Weather just a little bit perkier. Um, but you know, the Lord was cool even as I'm able to say that he hears our prayers. We had a, a dog that was visiting us and uh, it was fascinated with like a Canadian honker that it wasn't a stork, it wasn't a, it was a, it wasn't a duck. It was like this big Canadian goose landing in Brookings, just getting refreshed before he goes back up to Canada. And um, he led a dog. Was Shiloh the name? Yeah. Shiloh. We were calling him many things. Milo, Shiloh. But um, he pursued this goose out into the surf, and Rivers humorously brought that to our attention yesterday. And I noticed because just eyeballs, the way they were looking beyond me. So I'm either knowing that's a whale that's breaching, a shark that's combing the, I don't know. But in this case, it was, there's something going on. I looked, was, yeah, there's a dog and he's like way out there. And this dog was committed to help that little Canadian goose along. And so at any rate, it became a concern to the owners and they were yelling for the dog to return. It wasn't going after the goose. And I said, you know what? Let's just stop and pray for the dog, that the dog can just come back safely and we can see the Lord work practically. So right there we prayed. And I believe I've been told, you know, I was praying, so I was keeping my focus on prayer. But as we were praying, the dog turned around and started to paddle back to the owners. And saw the owners and was encouraged to make it to the shore. I was hoping for something dramatic like a surfing dog, like catching a breaker and just, you know, bellying it in. That's what I was hoping for. But the Lord just did it very practically, brought the dog in. And so wasn't that cool? It was good. And um, there you go. The Lord does answer prayer. Let's go ahead and move into Psalm 142, find out what this is about. We'll have some pictures that we'll reference as well in the book of Samuel. This is David that is penning this, and we have an idea of where he may have been in doing it. Several locations gave in. He appears to be in a dark place. He appears to have a motivation, and that is to find refuge. There's reasons that at times the Lord allows us to both be in dark places and also trust in him and the refuge that it provides. David was realistically on the run to save his life. He had attracted both by an anointing that he had and a personality that was genuine, 
a following. We might call this the early church on the run because they were men who were considered in scriptures as mighty. They had with them what we would say the baggage of life. We'll hear about that in reference to 1 Samuel. When there are those whom we can say in similitude or like us, but moving through burdens that either we have been in or shall be in or have never had to feel the weight of, it can be rather overwhelming when you alone realize you're the target of the enemy. And David knew that. I don't think that at the time of his anointing by Samuel among his brothers, his extraordinary work as a representative and ambassador of God on the battlefield that he could have imagined that things would have turned so contrary against him by one who, as the king, that was Saul, would do such a thing. For David also had been, and still presently was, a son-in-law. That's a hard family to come into. But this right now is the difference, is that Saul was not one following the Lord. In fact, David had been commissioned to be the next king because he had a heart that followed after God. And so that's one of the important things to note here. It appears historically that David found certain areas of refuge while on the run. He would protectively seek the best for those who followed him. And as such, there was a lot of responsibility that he had. The feeding of them, the guarding of them, the leading of them, listening to them, that alone can be a weight. Oy vey, I didn't know the problems were so vast. This is considered, though, a contemplation of David. So I want you to pay attention to that subordinate to the title because there's a difference between contemplation of David concerning the Lord and commiserating seemingly for godly purposes but in a misery that truly God does not want us to be in. Contemplative, this is David. Commiserating, this is not David. We go through hardships. One of the, I think, greatest statements that I heard at a devotional study by an associate pastor who's remained a good friend throughout these years was this. I think it was actually that devotion. It was simply in this phrase. Life is hard. God is good. Amen. Let's bow our heads. And then we were dismissed. Never forgot it. Never forgot it. Another phrase that was given to me when I was a teacher, and it remained very important to me as too, God's will is simple. It's simple. And so with that, in times in which predictably there are hardships for us, the Lord, as we contemplate where we're at, why we are there, 
and that he's the one that sees us in those times where others have despair. He's the one that gives us clarity or maybe even a better word, awareness of his nearness and of his faithfulness. I know we're not into the psalm yet, but it's important to give you an overlay right now. If you're a commiserator right now, the Lord would say, be a contemplator. Life is hard, but I am good and I'm faithful. Verse one, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. An important word. We've looked at it before, but it's always nice to be refreshed in it. And supplication has both what you can see visually in terms of the handling of something in tactile. Like, for instance, this word. If you inspected my Bible, it's just chafed. It's wrinkled. It's got chinks out of the leather, scars on it from where it's followed me and where I've followed it. And I realized that in order to sustain this for the years ahead, I may not be able to get all of it. This shouldn't be happening. But it did. It's a marker. It left its proper place, so I place it where it's proper. I haven't let go of it yet. I haven't said, yeah, through with that. The rest of it is doing okay. The point that I was making is that a discovery had was oil it. Oil the skin. Rub it in. Work it into that hard leather exterior. Make it supple. So in the supplication that David is offering to the Lord in prayer, he is both expressing, not demanding, an address from the Lord. And as he's doing so, we know that what it implies is a softening of his exterior and the hardship of what he's going through, the responsibilities that he has. Even the fact that he cannot fully see from where he's at in the test and trial to the place that God will bring him because it's way too long. He will be on at least a 10-year run for his life. So when you talk about someone who has known from an early age the anointing that was upon him by a prophet that was undisputably the greatest of that day in that time, Samuel, and to see the things that ultimately he would move into when he, in fact, had been known throughout all Israel as a hero, taking on a giant that scared every capable, military, mighty warrior that Israel had. David said, not me. You don't insult my God without paying for it. That's the story you're familiar with. David contemplates this place. It is a cave. We have an idea of where the cave may be. There are at least two that the scriptures give us clues on. A dulem may be one of them. We'll look at that. The other may be in Gedi, 
we'll look at that. A dualism gives us an idea of when all of a sudden those who had needs began to say, who do I have to trust in? If that guy is on the run, and I know of him in a small way, I will join him in a large way. I've got nothing else to lose except right now, my life. And therefore, if God is with him, then I will join his ranks with what it is I have to offer. That's their perspective. David right now is going, what do you got to offer? Uh, personality? Mm, one of you guys. <laughs> they will all have personalities. The cave, the inn, the place that David will make as a residency, a refuge for the opportunity to seek God in the darkness. Have you ever found an opportunity in which God has spoken to you in the darkness? Maybe what you need to say is, this is my cave. This is the cave that by contemplation, prayerful supplication, I will have communion with God. I could try for other areas that would offer me greater comfort, but I will seek my comfort in the cave, the place where it's dark. The other thing concerning contemplation, in other words, considering God, and especially from the vantage of which David saw, is that you've entered into a cave before. Most of us have had that experience. I'm sure some of you have been to Cave Junction and been to the Oregon Caves. It was one of the tours I used to take my fourth graders on. Loved it until they turned out the lights. Hated it. I'd always be having to say, oh, Lord, give me strength. What if the light switch doesn't work? What'd they say? What'd he say again? That that guy that went in there, Jedediah, I believe, that he had to use like a, a smoking wick to perhaps catch a breeze and see where perhaps the, the smoke is going. I didn't want any of that. And I remember that while I was in there, Many of my fourth graders were closer around me as if I had the answer. <laughs> if I could do anything, I said, oh, Lord, let me not sound like one of them. Let me be bold in strength. I sure hope that guy didn't forget where the light switch was. Because what they would tell you is you're in total darkness. You're in such total darkness, you actually can't even see your finger right near your eye, right on your eye. You can see nothing but total darkness. If darkness can be seen, then it's seen in that cave. The interesting thing is, is that when there is light that can enter as you draw near towards it, you have the ability actually to gather where you're at and be able to make footsteps towards that exit. The thing that you will also realize is that as you enter, your eyes can't adjust to the darkness. It's dark. What is in there can see you. You coming in there cannot see it. And this is something we'll look at. The contemplation of David, why he chose to move in to a cave and make it his home, his habitation. When he was a man of the fields, he dwelt with the flock. He had been in the palace under Saul. He had admiration he had a reputation. 
it was all gone. To leave him now with you would a ragtag group of men who carried their own baggage. Supplication is what he is offering to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. So what's the difference then? The commiseration or the complaint? Commiseration is the attitude that is simply perpetuated over and over and over. A complaint is voicing, this is what's happening. It depends on how you complain. I remember my grandfather in a restaurant back in Virginia. I totally remember this one line too. At the end of the meal, the restaurant would ask you, so what did you think about the Three Chefs restaurant? Were you happy to be here? And my grandfather, Edgar, said, well, you may have had three chefs, but you needed three waitresses. I remembered that. He pointedly gave them a complaint that was humorously hedged in a compliment. You had three chefs. That was good. Three waitresses is what I needed at my table. The supplication of David being poured out as a complaint, citing right now what's going on in his heart. I declare before him my trouble. Because there are troubles. David's now simply listing them. There is a troubled heart, but something is the reason for the trouble. God is able to hear them, sort them out. He's able to make sense of them or bring you to your senses regarding them. That's when you're brought into a heightened awareness. Things sound differently. Things look differently. Things feel differently than what may be the overwhelming, if you would, troubling situation that you're going through. When the perspective is first on the Lord contemplatively, then he brings to your attention the things that are heightened about him and his faithfulness. David is declaring to him the troubles that he is going through. It's not like God doesn't know, but in those places, God loves to hear our evaluation, and he loves to hear us cheering him on and expressing our faith with regard to, Lord, how do I get out of this cave? I'm in it. I'm protected by it. And I'm with others. But Lord, I know this is not, per se, the end of the course. There's something else that I need to be doing. He moves on into verse 3. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. David voices, in my opinion, a compliment of God's faithfulness to him when a snare had been laid. That means a treacherous activity that was intended for his demise. And he compliments God by saying, You know, Lord, you know all about me. And in that, I voice. I know what I'm going through. Don't know how I'm going to get out of it. But you, Lord, know all things. And you see me. And you see the precision with which you will guide and direct me. 
Secretly, they've set a snare, but I'm coming to you with my voice raised. My men hear me. Do you know when our lives are reflected in a confidence in the Lord, when even those close by us aren't fully aware of how much you're going through, they see your faith in what you're willing to trust God for. And I like that. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. This could be a gripe, but it's probably stated as a fact. We know people that we've had at times in our lives that don't care for us. And I mean that vindictively. They don't care for us. And that's different than people who simply can't care for you. Many responsibilities that everybody has. And if everybody is, in fact, looking for a caretaker, as opposed to coming to the Lord with our cares, there can be an unnecessary challenge. We've all been appointed at times to care for one another. But when a person or anything becomes the source for simply caring for you, and it's bypassed the chain of command, asking God that in spite of what may not necessarily be the empathies or sympathies of others, he's got the answer. And my confidence is built up in that alone. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Great perspective. He's wanted as a man who has been appointed to die. That's what Saul has. He basically has legislated that that man, David, needs to be killed on site. Don't even want him taken in. So he knows that he's a wanted man. And yet he says that in this, my portion in the land of the living, he's exercising in a supplication, a declaration of hope. Yeah, I know. They see me as a dead man. I understand that. I'm dead, but I'm alive. I'm alive in what? I'm alive in the spirit. I'm alive in the way of the Lord, the manner and means by which he shall save me. Verse 6, he petitions to the Lord in his supplication, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. He identifies that those who are after him are persecutors. They're not simply persons of interest. They're not simply individuals who want to parlay, French for talk. They want to undo him, displace him. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. It closes. The supplication concludes with a beautiful statement. You shall deal bountifully with me, though my title has been taken Though my esteem has been disregarded, my reputation has been, if you would, stained by the voices of those who disdain me. Lord, 
in this closure you shall deal bountifully with me. And so it's a very short psalm. It says a lot. And David was able to package words very concisely, very encouraging, I believe very transparently. But if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel, we'll go to chapter 22 and see if we can grab a hold of the picture here. Maybe for inflection, don't cave in. Find the cave of the inn. Find the place in which you're ready to cave in that is the refuge in which others joining you will be a blessing to you and the Lord will protect you. Yeah, I am getting to kind of a parallel. It sounds a lot like the church. Here's why. In chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. He's making his escape family here of that join him and notice what continues to happen everyone who was in distress everyone who was in debt everyone who was discontented gathered to him so he became captain over them and there were about 400 men with him that joined because of family in acts chapter 2 3 as you track the history of the church. It started with 120 in an upper room who waited upon the Lord, waited for the Lord. The Spirit came down upon them. Tongues were given as a gift to pronounce the gospel message. They were then dispatched, and they would see the evidence of the risen Lord in their obedience to be where it was that he told them to be. And it's actually an extraordinary work there because everyone that became a part of the church actually probably could have been qualified exactly as these mighty men of valor. Were these men valiant at this time? It seems to be that no one faithful to Saul would have been them. It would appear that what they were is cited by God in advance of what they would become in the same way. Those who come into the church are not so impressive to anyone's standards, but from God's perspective, they are everything that he needs to make them mighty men in the faith and to become a part of an integral family in which the resources of the Holy Spirit at his dispatch and upon his discharge does mighty things. The church grew exponentially is what we see in the book of Acts. It was extraordinary. It wasn't saying, what do we got to do to make this thing grow? It grew. It wasn't a business plan. It was the plan of God to touch those who exercising in faith 
would congregate and become one in the spirit, one as a body, one as a vital communicator in the hands of the Lord himself. And one of the things that we also need to know is that the Lord, in a time in which the inn is your cave, the church, which many would say, was it ever a cave? Actually, in a time of persecution, much like David was going through, the church met in the catacombs, the underbelly of the cities that were placed there, dug out, dead bones they would live and they would have their worship and their teachings in those dark places praying asking for strength direction truth light when they came out that they would be disposed in whatever manner that the Lord would permit for himself to be glorified so this is what is important to note is that as David is penning this psalm, these men on the run with him are also caved in with him. They are in an inn, which is a cave, and they are learning of the Lord from a guy who even in a dark time and in a dark space chooses to bear witness and give testimony. The Adullam cave seems to be different, but what you need to know is that at this time, David was seeking solace from Saul. And it's a different place. I feel relatively confident of that. But moving over a couple of chapters, we'll see another area. And this is special. I've been to this one. This is special because it is an oasis. It's an oasis, and yet Dave's in a cave. He's as much aware of the particular threat that Saul is posing to him as he did in Adullam. There, he had family join him. There, he had men of valor join him. 400, it will continue to increase. The scriptures will tell us up to 600 would be the strength. Add to that, very likely, family of those mighty men. He's got quite a troop of personalities with him, needs that need to be met, that only God can meet. How big is that cave? How much can it hold? Don't have the answer for you. I just know that David saw fit to seek the answer from God by being in that place, cloistered, if you would, to compression, to perhaps, hey, you're taking my air, Hey, you've taken my food. It says this in first verse. It happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. So when we drove up to Engedi, I think probably we felt, man, 3,000 people are here. That's what verse 2 says. Chosen men are brought by Saul to Engedi to find David. And this was probably one of his most favorite poetic places to be. It has flowing water. 
And it's a beautiful, crystal clear, very predictable flow of water with pools that are layered into the cliffs that as it falls, it will come down and it will create pools which lead to other pools. And it's very refreshing. It was noted for being literally an oasis because of the palm trees that would grow. Not so prolific in these days. Many things since that time obviously has happened to Israel. But you can imagine what it would have been like to be in the palm groves. And you can see, looking up to the cliffs and alongside, even in back of the falls, where there may have been caves. We didn't have time to explore anything like that. But this is where David now finds himself. And here's what this story basically lays out. While he is there, Saul comes to pursue him. And in a need, a functional need, Saul enters into the very cave that he and his men are at. They see him, as I explained earlier, he cannot see them. He feeling, Saul, quite alone and probably contemplative as far as the strategy of where is this rascal. This rascal is right next to him. His men tell David, the Lord's made this your opportunity to take the throne. David wouldn't buy into that. What David did do that his heart would be convicted of later, probably within minutes, was to shear off a part of Saul's robe. We don't need to get into the details, but Saul was indisposed. And his probably regalia at that time was the king's robe. And David did that to be able to indict Saul for chasing him, but also to be able to appeal to this man that I could have taken your life and I didn't. I took simply the hem of your garment. In conviction, though, his heart was smote. And in this time, David also learned, you don't take things into your own hands. In my time, I put things into your hands. Well, didn't he put Saul there? He did. But the anointed of God, which was a king, was not to be touched. That was a principle that David would live through. He literally moved to not take in haste the throne before the perfect time of God that he believed in his heart would come to pass. So in this cave-in experience, David did not cave in to persuasion to do anything contrary to God's will. That's the point that I'm making. At times in our cave-in, when we are seeking the Lord's will, we can be persuaded by voices that say, this is God, rise up, take it on. It's been placed in your hands. Do what you need to do. Make life easier for yourself. Go ahead, God's with you. And you have to know that every voice that you hear is subject to the voice of God. It does not mean that men, women, children cannot have a persuasion 
that is sincere because of their love for you. The fact that they have found you to be faithful to the things of God. One of the dilemmas in pastoral ministry is to discern what is going on. Why is it going on? Lord, what do you want to do in the ongoing of it? You can get into trading scriptures. You can get into saying things that are, in fact, not in error, but you're wondering, what is God doing on the other side of this? And so the only thing that I would say with regard to the cave-in, the experience in which your supplications are being offered to the Lord, and persuasive voices may be just in advance of something that the Lord has not yet found to be the best solution, he'll give you the solution. You just have to stand strong. You have to be one that says, I know it doesn't sound prudent. It seems to be I'm missing my moment, but I am going to trust God in the land of the living. Though it appears I'm a dead man, though it appears there's nothing that I can do, and that all who have even invested faith in me, I'm going to wait for the voice of God. And the scriptures are what confirms ultimately the will as we stay anchored in it. That's really the point of this teaching. Psalm 142 addresses a man who in a cave in experience doesn't simply give up doesn't simply take suggestions that seem, if you would, very logical, even when in a moment takes an initiative to make a mark on a man. He addresses that with the Lord. He makes his appeal ultimately by leaving the cave and shouting to Saul, who's already exited. Saul is touched by it, by the way. If you read the account, Saul sees what David could have done, and it melts him. He looks up at David, and you, my son, is that you? And then he begins actually evaluating who he is. I think that though David's heart was touched, in other words, it was smited by what he did, God used that as evidence of grace in Saul's life to where Saul became one who confessed how treacherous he was, how evil he had been, vindictive, and absolutely out of line in what he was doing. And we need to know that those are the things that God can bring to a person is ultimately, look what could have happened to you and didn't. We always have to leave, though, ultimately the plan in God's hand and apply our hands when the Spirit says, this is what you touch. This is how you proceed. Now? No, not now. Wait. Now? Nope. Not now. Wait. Now? Yes, now. Lightly. Okay, now grab it. Get a hold of it. Speak it. The cave-in. We are not to be those who, in the process of the experience of feeling oppressed, which is the work of the enemy, we're to know God convicts, 
God doesn't condemn. The enemy does. Conviction is where the Lord has made very clear what his intentions are, or our intentions in which there needs to be a different mindset, a different plan. And so that's where we will leave off. 22, a cave experience in a refreshing place. He finds himself still in a dark place. Can you find yourself in a dark place in a refreshing place? Yep. Maybe some of you are there. Can you find yourself in a dark place in a dark place? Yep. Many of us don't want that. But in both of these instances, one drew people to David and the other provoked a repentance of a man who was doing so much wrong, so much that literally destroyed his opportunity. David left both of those in the hands of the Lord by supplication and prayer. He was honest with God. This is what I'm going through. This is what it feels like. A lot of eyes are on me. Lord, my eyes are on you. A lot of eyes are on me. What am I going to do? My eyes are on you, and I will only do what you compel me to do by your spirit. 